Miss Holroyd, City Federal. Your lost check still hasn't arrived. It's impossible for us to lose checks. So unless we receive full payment by noon today, we'll foreclose. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And today we are sticking with our season five choices and going into episode 14, The Battle Axe and the Exploding Cigar. That is a delightful title. Season five has the like, we're going to do weird titles now thing <laughs> going on. There's a, if you, if you look through, scroll through a list of the titles, there's some of the good ones like uh, the Nehru Jacket one is quite fun. With the French heel back, can the Nehru jacket be far behind? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we just, you and I just talked about this, but maybe we should mention it for our listeners that you've done a rundown of where we've done our episodes, you know, what ones we've covered. And season five uh, seems to be the final frontier, right? Like, yes, (laughs) we have the most remaining episodes to talk about in this season. Yeah. So, which is kind of an artifact of a couple things. One is that when we first started the show, the first three seasons were available for streaming on Hulu. So we did a lot from those because we wanted to make sure that if someone wanted to watch the episodes, that, you know, they were from the selection available. Once those went off (laughs) and there's no longer streaming anywhere, then it was kind of like the doors, the the floodgates were opened uh, in terms of our choices. So. Since then, it's been uh, hopping around by inclination, by audience request, and by, you know, whenever we get into kind of a bit of a groove, like doing the Gandhi episodes back to back, like that kind of thing. I think I probably mentioned this every time we talk about a season five episode, but season four is when the Rockford Files won a bunch of Emmys. So best best dramatic series. Uh, I believe James Garner won an Emmy, and that's when Rita Moreno won an Emmy for Paper Palace. And and the downward slide of audience from the high of the first season had evened out. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like the top show or anything, but it was dramatically acclaimed and had a solid spot in the TV lineup, uh, whatever, whatever night it was. The way I read it is that they're a bit, they're kind of emboldened to do weirder stuff once all of those milestones had been kind of achieved. So season five has some of the weirder episodes. I th- that's a good read. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but it, I would, I'm happy to believe it. In this episode, I think we'll find uh, a little bit of that weirdness. Yeah, I think it might bear out the theory a little bit. It's experimental in certain ways. It's experimental in certain ways, but it's also very, I was going to say retro, but that's not really the right word. It's experimental in some ways for the Rockford Files, but also in ways in which it seems like it is. it would be totally normal on a different kind of show. Yeah. It, this feels like uh, the Rockford Files, I almost, I kind of want to say spoofing uh, something else that's happening at that time, mm-hmm. right? Maybe um, something more Mission Impossible or Man from Uncle or, mm-hmm. or, you know, like some sort of spy show. This is what, 79? Episode, yeah, it's uh, early 79. So stuff like the outfits and stuff like that definitely have the late later 70s kind of vibe to them can we i guess before we jump into the show can we talk a little bit about uh jim's suit and the way it interacts with the television set i don't know if this happened with you but like the plaid the pattern on his suit 
would be okay and then they would switch to another camera and it would just be like jim was actually an octopus <laughs> disguised as jim flashing its bioluminescence at me you got the, the pattern on the suit yeah started like and it that may be a product of like the current resolution on mm-hmm. my television set or how my vcr interacts with my television set and not like not a thing that would have happened back in the day but i definitely had a like what is happening here the main thing that i noticed was his uh pale yellow shirt with the pop collar not popped but like yeah the style of that shirt is where it has the high collar that kind of goes over the top of the suit jacket yeah the man looks good in pale yellow don't get me wrong but (laughs) some of the scenes are night scenes and for whatever reason whenever there was a night scene it was like top button unbuttoned big lapel yellow shirt that popped out to me as uh as a strong strong fashion choice um I mean, so one of one of the reasons why this might feel a little different is because, I mean, we've had a long string of, like, very central creative voices. We've had a lot of Juanita Bartlett scripts. Uh, yeah. And this one is, uh, this one has three credits for the writing. There's two story credits, and then there are the teleplay credit. Mm-hmm. So the story by Man Rubin and Michael Wagner, and then teleplay by Rogers Turrentine. So Rogers Turrentine apparently ended up, uh, this was one of his first TV credits. He ended up becoming buddies with, probably through this, with David Chase and worked on a lot of David Chase product, projects later. Mm-hmm. And also some Magnum PI where he actually did, you know, story, not just the, the teleplays. Uh, Michael Wagner, I didn't find out a lot of, about him on online. He did tons of TV. He ended up a staff writer for Hill Street Blues. So he has 60 Hill Street Blues credits. Wow. Which sounds like a lot of Hill Street Blues. A single Rockford Files. Yeah, this is just the one. I think all these guys, this is just the one Rockford Files that they that they did. Yeah. And then Man Rubin, also tons oh, of TV. Hold on. Sorry, I got to stop you. You're burying the lead. I never know which of the obscure properties someone's worked on is going to be the one that jumps out to you. Well, this one, Michael Wagner, a man of mystery by uh, his IMDb bio, which Mm. is how I uh, judge all people. Uh, The obscure one I'm thinking of is, all right, do you remember the sci-fi television show, Star Trek? (laughs) There was a sequel in the late eighties, early nineties called Star Trek, the next generation. And he wrote three episodes of that. That's true. I glossed over that. I'm that's my bad. I felt like I was talking about him too much, so I moved on. <laughs> anyway, Man Rubin. Yes. Again, tons of TV and some feature film credits. Also wrote for DC's Strange Adventures and Mysteries in Space. Oh. And had 15 short stories in Alfred Hitchcock Magazine. Nice. So it seemed like an interesting person. I wasn't, I didn't do too much digging on what any of those were, but. Uh, right. So when I so when I went over that, I was like, oh, maybe this is one of those like a story that is adapted from some other thing. But I don't get that feeling here necessarily. I'm just looking at at uh, man Rubin's uh, catalog and he does have Mission Impossible. Mm. Oh, I think I've seen his six million dollar man. Yeah, I've seen a six million dollar man. That was a good one. Um, I mean, he wrote some Mannix episodes. Yeah, he did. He had a he had a fugitive episode. Yeah, it's like he was all over the place. Yeah, he's written for everybody everywhere, so it doesn't. Uh, but those those sci fi writer connections are always one that I think 
we like to see. Neither one of us is adopting the standpoint that this was a script written for something other than Rockford Files and then turned into Rockford Files. This right. feels like Rockford Files making a comment on something. Right, or a script that could be for a number of shows, and this is yeah. how it works for Rockford, versus right. how it would work for, like, Kojak. Um, and this is one of uh, Ivan Dixon's nine Rockford Files uh, directorial efforts. We've seen him before directing uh, the Mayor's Committee from Deer Lick Falls mm-hmm. and Kill the Messenger. Um we went over this, I believe, yes. in Mayor's Committee from Deer Lake Falls. We talked about him a little bit more. Yes. He was an actor on Broadway and uh, ended up friends with Sidney Poitier, was in The Raisin in the Sun yeah, Broadway show and movie. Uh, he was in Hogan's Heroes in like an ensemble role. And he was an important figure in the African-American filmmaking community. And he was an activist against stereotypical roles for black actors. Yes. And I have been on his IMDP page before. Uh, which is kind of interesting considering some elements in this episode. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, we could talk about those in those. Yeah. And this episode has lots of uh, formal elements that are kind of send-ups of the genre. And I wonder how much of that is his hand versus, like, the editing room, you know? Yeah, I'm curious about that. That's not my theory, but I, I'm not... But I totally agree with what you're saying there. Well, let's let's uh, let's get into it. We've been here long enough. I believe that our preview montage is is short and sweet. We start off seeing that Rockford's in jail, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you not want to watch an episode where he starts off in jail? Uh, we hear the National Intelligence Agency, and so we type exclamation points into our notes because <laughs> what the hell, Rockford? What are you into now? And we see some wiretapping and a wonderful line about, um, I didn't write down the first part of this, but it was just like, oh, your case is getting away or whatever. And he's like, are you kidding? I'll sink it if I have to. <laughs> Referring to a boat that's about to leave. Like, that's Rockford who's who's got, a, he's a dog with a bone, right? Like, he's he's not letting this get away. And it ends with a dramatic dive from said boat into the yes. water. However, we do not see who's doing the diving. No. Hello, listeners. We really appreciate you being here, and we want to make sure that you know that you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to episode previews and access to the 200 a day Rockford Files Files spreadsheet, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you know you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft. Hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting over at jayadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and our detective patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenor at Antenor, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course... Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them, too, at 200pod. 
help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Well, uh, we come into this one with our uh, title right at the start and our credits play over the uh, the soothing tones of Rockford Files uh, music. Jim driving a Cadillac down some desert-looking roads. He has, uh, there's, there's a fellow in the passenger seat. Uh, we'll shortly learn this is Bernie Petrankis, um, who's just throwing back slugs of some kind of brown liquor uh, while Jim gives him the side eye. Uh, he's got lots of nice mixed metaphors to toss out about life, which I'm enjoying. Spilled milk under the bridge. <laughs> a little soliloquy about uh, this is the first day of the rest of his life. Look forward, not back. Uh, some highway patrol vehicle uh, sees them drive by. They see the passenger with the open container and pull out to follow. And they have some dialogue to establish that that's why they are following. Mm-hmm. And then a uh, call comes over the police scanner for a stolen vehicle. And it is the make and license plate of the Cadillac that is in front of them. So they hit the sirens, uh, pull the car over. There's a great moment as they're pulling over where Jim tells Bernie to chug a lug or something like that. Uh, I told you you shouldn't be drinking that where people could see it. And uh, as these two cops uh, are acting on a call of a stolen vehicle, they demand for the guys to get out of the car. They start handcuffing them. Jim asks if they've read the Constitution recently. And the cop says, well, there's not a lot in it about stolen cars. And so Jim is, of course, aghast that this is, he could be implicated in such a crime. Uh, And they open the trunk of the car and turns out it is full of guns and ammunition. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to go on record right now uh, and say that I love this opening because I have no clue what is happening (laughs) this is a true in media res yeah so we don't know who this guy next to jim is i mean we'll we'll learn his name uh they seem friendly enough that this guy would sit in the car next to him drinking and tell him that uh this is the the first day of the rest of his life and blah 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 jim's not in his car this isn't this is this is a like a distinctly non-jim car yeah. Right. Like this is not the kind of car that Jim would be in. We don't know why Jim would be driving it. Uh, when we hear that it's stolen, we're like, oh, so this is the hook. Uh, somebody has tricked him into taking a stolen car. Mm-hmm. And then the cop is like, we have probable cause. And that makes it uh, kind of nice because we can go all the way. And they pop the trunk. Yeah. And there are all of these guns in there. And you're just like, okay. Like every <laughs> – now you're like, I'm going to need some answers soon because mm-hmm. what is going what on what is that going on and someone i wrote this down i don't know who said it but somebody just shouted holy leroy <laughs> uh and that was that was my thought too uh, exactly maybe i shouted it maybe i just wrote down <laughs> what i said in the room well we cut from that to our establishing shot of uh, the federal building in la and the first of this distinctive formal it's not a motif it's a it's a technique uh mm-hmm. it's an it's a device which is the typewriter sound effect while the like computery font is typed onto yeah. the screen 
one letter at a time in the lower left-hand corner. 1,500 hours. Federal building, L.A. Yeah. This occurs over three days, basically. It's like the 10th, 11th, 12th, or something like that. So it does the date. It gives you military time, location. Um, and uh, that's the first indication to me that it's like, all right, what ride are we on? Like, it's so... It feels like a parody. Yes. But I don't know if it was supposed to be a parody at the time or just because of my media diet, that effect is a parody effect now, you know? Yeah, right. So when we say computery words, right, computery font, uh, what we're talking about is the font that if you look on your checkbook, oh, God. Remember checkbooks? Anyways, there's a font that certainly in um, the 70s, the reason that why this font exists is because computers at that time could read it. All right. This is the type of thing. I'm, I don't know why I'm explaining this. What I'm what I'm trying to say is that was definitely at that time used to make it look futuristic or, or cutting edge. Maybe not futuristic, but cutting edge. I think this has to be parody. It's. I've got I, apparently I got many theories about this show. What, part of what I'm going to hypothesize here, what part of what I'm going to go with here is that uh, this joke is, or this show is making fun of the idea that the government can do super spy stuff that we see in Mission Impossible, or uh, I mean, Man from Uncle was tongue in cheek anyway, so that wouldn't. But you know what I mean, like. Mm-hmm. We're going to find. We're going to run into spies here. We know that it was in the opening montage, National Intelligence Agency, uh, and they are not going to be good and effective spies. They're going <laughs> to be the opposite of that. And um, I think that that's why this font and this was done was sort of like to give it that air so that it felt. Uh, it has that like spy counter spy. Yeah, intelligence. Right. You don't know who's doing what, why kind of thing. Yes. And and nobody else in this is going to live up to that. Like the, <laughs> the plot is going to be that, but the characters absolutely won't. And that's great. This effect, this this type is called MICR, Magnetic Ink Character Recognition. Nice. So it's a standard that was used to print characters so that computers could read them at high speeds. Um, and I guess, so there are different literal, like, fonts that accord to this standard, but it's M-I-C-R. So if you search for that, or if you go to any free font site and search for checkbook font, there's a, yeah. a pretty popular one that is just a, a digital version of what these generally look like, if you are having a hard time envisioning what this uh, what this is. Like I said, this is, like, at that time, that would have been what the future looked like, right? right? So it was it was meant to be, like... Get ready for a cutting-edge story of spy thrills and mm-hmm. chills. And, oh, yeah, we're in for something much better. <laughs> so we uh, get into the federal building. Jim is uh, meeting with his lawyer. Unfortunately, his pal Cooper is out of town. So uh, Beth Davenport is no longer in the picture, as Gretchen Corbett is no longer on the show. Uh, yeah. uh, Coop is his new lawyer buddy who... We still haven't done the episode where he actually arrives, I believe. Um, but we don't need to deal with him because he's not in this episode either. Uh, so there's this very young guy who's like, oh, I'm a Harvard Law grad. I will, I'll be fine. 
And I think Jim does not uh, think that he'll be fine. As his advice is, just tell it like it was. <laughs> uh, a new character runs into this office, blows by everyone to go into the inner office of the FBI agent that we'll shortly be looking at. And I think this is where it's like, okay, this is for humor, because we just had yeah. 1,500 hours, blah, 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 blah. Now we have 1,505 hours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, inside this office. And this guy, Tony uh, Musi, or Musi, uh, who's from the ATF and the Treasury Department, um, is coming to see FBI agent Spelling, who is the FBI agent who has picked up Jim and uh, uh, Bernie for this hot car that was full of guns. Yes. And uh, the thing to know about Tony is that he is one groovy cat. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's like, hang loose. We have a righteous interest in this. It's yeah. just, <laughs> he is a new breed of G man. Mm -hmm. And uh, so spelling says that the FBI isn't about to hand over this case, but uh, Musi, I'm oh, sorry, Musia. It's, it's pronounced, like once or twice in the show, and I still couldn't figure out what, what they were saying. So Agent Tony. Yes. <laughs> Agent Tony says that these guns were probably part of a theft from this military base in Nevada, and everybody knows that the FBI is only on this because they always pop hot cars so that their stats look good at the end of the year, but uh, this involves alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, so it should be his case. <laughs> You know, the guy was drinking, the guns, obviously. And I think there was a reference to cigars at some point, right? Yeah. Uh, I think we'll find out that th this guy in the car is... A yeah, he's like a... T he works for, like, a tobacco company or something. Yeah, yeah. So Spelling says, like, okay, go ahead. And then asks... <laughs> yes. You've uh, had some experience with firearms, huh? Oh, about two months. Uh, before that, I was mostly in tobacco. This show is a catalog of great incidental characters. This, <laughs> this character isn't just incidental. He comes in a few times during this episode. But uh, we just get right off the bat. They know how to establish this character. He is cocky and self-sure in such a way. Like, he just storms past everyone into this guy's office because he belongs there. And <laughs> then he takes part of the case. And the guy's like, fine. <laughs> like, uh <laughs> The, uh, I shouldn't say the guy, Agent Spelling is like, okay, you know, like, you, you can have this or whatever. But it's, he is very self-sure, and he probably shouldn't be as self-sure as he is. Right. But he, he, he doesn't know what he's actually into here. Mm -hmm. Agent Tony goes to interrogate Bernie in an interrogation room, and then Jim comes in to give his statement to Spelling in Spelling's office. Uh, before we get into that sequence, um, Agent Tony comes out of the interrogation room, sees a secretary at the water fountain and basically charms her into like, yes. Hey, I need you to come take some dictation when clearly she's not supposed to, she's supposed to go back to the steno pool, but he's clearly such this young, good looking guy. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> that she, uh, she's like, okay, what can it hurt? Yeah. And, uh, the camera, you know, as they go back into the room, the, the camera shows us that there's a slightly older, dark-haired woman who sees that interaction and then, like, looks kind of, like, yes. about it. And she stalks off. This plays into some of my favorite kinds of humor here. We now have two government agencies. We have the trappings of the show telling us that this is a spy thriller. And the obvious point of contention, the obvious note, the dun-dun-dun here, 
is that somebody is upset with a coworker from the steno pool. Right. And that's that's the hook for the entire like that's why everything in this episode happens. Yes. Right? Is cuz that woman saw this secretary uh Stacy, I believe, go yeah. into that room when she wasn't supposed to. As experienced Rockford Files viewers, the whole time we're like Rockford doesn't know it quite yet, but he is in way over his head. Mm-hmm. And then then we see this moment and we're like this is it. This is this is Rockford's in. This is where Rockford can play. And that's, I love it. So now we go into this sequence where they cut back and forth between their two statements. We start with 1,600 hours. (laughs) Agent Spelling and Jim saying his first sentence. And then it cuts to the interrogation room. 1,605. (laughs) Right? Like, so it's giving us these five-minute increments. Um, And then it just cuts back and forth. But uh, basically... They each tell the same story, making it sound like the other guy is yeah. the one who had the car. Um, so Jim went to Vegas, gambled away all his money, wanted to make one more effort uh, at the the last chance. Ended up uh, not making it there. They wouldn't let him have his car because he owes $200 to the casino that they loaned him to gamble before they yeah. let him get his car out. So then he ended up running into Bernie, who was leaving and offered offered him a ride. And then it's cutting back and forth. And Bernie's saying that, you know, I was tapped out. You know, this guy offered me a ride in his car. Jim says that he didn't know that the catch was that Bernie was going to talk the whole time. Yes. And then Bernie says that, uh, you know, we were just riding along and he wouldn't. He kept on talking and he said something about it. A trunk full of poppers right before we got pulled over. (laughs) Uh. And this answers the question that I had the whole time that I didn't really think about. Because for whatever reason, I thought that when he talked about having to get his car out, he was talking about that Cadillac. But no, Mm -hmm. the Firebird's still in Vegas, right? That's why there's no Firebird in this episode. (laughs) Yep, he's he's got it uh, in in Hawk. They're holding on to it until he can... Pay them the $200. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give it away, but uh, he's not earning a lot of money this episode. <laughs> he just needs to work for one day. Just one. Yeah. Just one day. Um, 1630. Steno pool. <laughs> so uh, the dark haired woman who saw the secretary get uh, uh, taken out, taken away by uh, Agent Tony comes in to talk to Mrs. Bateman. Mrs. Bateman is the administrator, is the, she's the head of the stenographer's pool. Yes, it's somebody, a co-worker being upset, who's about to report it. And one who's gossipy, because later she yeah. shares some gossip after saying, you know I don't gossip. Yes. <laughs> um, so Mrs. Bateman, I think the best word to describe her is officious. Yes, but she, I mean, the other way to describe her is that she's the titular battle axe. Mm-hmm. But she is definitely a by-the-books kind of gal. She is not happy that that regulations are not being abided by. As she goes to Spelling's office, she passes the interrogation room, and she sees what I describe in my notes as a guy with a face looking through the window. Uh, We'll come back to the guy with a face in a second. But it's important that she sees him in that moment. Then she walks into Spelling's office, interrupts his interrogation of Jim, and Spelling immediately, like, stands up. Mrs. Bateman, uh, can I help you? You can be of great help to me, Mr. Spelling, if you will simply comply with the departmental guidelines regarding steno services. 
You'll have to excuse me, but I'm at somewhat of a disadvantage. Could you tell me what you're referring to? And uses his most polite, formal voice with her. Yes. Which is an amazing way of immediately establishing the relationship that this woman, who is clearly a administrative official in this office, has with these, like, government agents who are the ones Mm -hmm. who are supposed to have, you know, all the power, right? He says that he's very sorry, but he's in the dark on this. He doesn't know what she's talking about. She explains, and he's like, oh, that must have been Agent uh, Musia in the interrogation room, and sends her back that way, and she goes to handle that business. Those ATF boys have been known to bend the rules. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then Jim has a smart aleck comment, and uh, Spelling says, just talk guns. Like, he immediately drops back into, like, no, I'm in charge here. It's just lovely status play. Mm -hmm. He clearly has more authority than she does. But at the office, she can bring his life to a standstill. Right. Yeah. So he's a pushover when it comes to uh, Mrs. Bateman, which is which is great. So she goes back into the hall where she sees uh, she confronts Mr. Donegan, who is the guy with the face, um, and asks why he's, you know, is he involved with this interrogation or something? And he says, no, no, he was just down there to go to the bathroom as the one upstairs was broken. Clearly lying. Yeah. And uh, and and gets away from uh, from that door. She walks in again, interrupting this interrogation. Scolds Stacy, the stenographer, uh, tells her to get back to work, uh, and then tells Agent Tony that she's going to file an official report about this untoward, you know, action mm-hmm. that he's taken. When she leaves, she looks down the hallway and sees the so the elevator doors are closing. As Stacy's in the elevator, and then this guy Donigan, who said he was down there just for the bathroom, jumps over and like shoves his arm in so that it opens so that he can go in to the same elevator with Stacy. Again, suspicious move. Yes, nothing about this is natural. <laughs> so uh, Mrs. Bateman, uh, Mrs. Eleanor Bateman, as we learn, is play played by Marge Redmond, who I could have sworn was in other episodes, but. Maybe there are some other kind of physically similar actresses in other episodes, because this is uh, her only um, Rockford appearance. She was in a show called The Flying Nun, which I assume is where the the concept slash reference to The Flying Nun comes from. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I remember seeing the show. <laughs> she had a recurring role on Matlock, um, and in kind of a uh, coming full circle thing... She was in the final episode of Nichols, which was the Juanita Bartlett, James Garner show that, that, that did not do well. That Mm -hmm. kind of was the precursor to the Rockford files in a lot of ways. Ah, uh, yeah, she's great. This is a fun role. So the outcome of all these statements and interrogations is that Agent Spelling throws Jim and Bernard into county jail for the night. Jim asks his lawyer what he's going to do about this, and his lawyer is very discouraged. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just My notes just say Jim needs Beth. Yeah. And we never see this young man again. Mm-hmm. 2,100 hours. County jail. <laughs> An officer comes in and pulls out Bernie. Apparently he's gotten bailed out. 
Jim asks, hey, what about Jim Rockford? Don't you have anything on Jim Rockford? He is ignored by the guard and goes back to sit on his uh, cot with a cigarette. The plot starts to thicken as, you know, why is this guy getting bailed out? This is the scene where Jim is yelling through the bars, yes. deputy, deputy. The the other inmates start mocking him yes. off camera. Poor Jim. So we go from there to to uh, uh, Petrankus, as everyone starts referring to him from here on out. Uh, our Ber- Bernie Petrankus. Petrankus is in a taxi, and he's dropped off in kind of a random lot where he is uh, comes up on an extremely fly custom convertible with painted flames on the sides. This car. It's funny because it's like like it is clearly a like oh this is all custom and it's this whole kind of like i don't know jive kind of infused character and it's supposed to be all fancy but the actual painting of the flames is kind of like this is the best we could do in the time we had like it's not like professional it's not like beautifully airbrushed it's kind of like painted on (laughs) um like we're gonna find out more about this character in in a little while Mm -hmm. it feels like a deliberateness to how over the top this is uh the the car and and uh the way this character speaks and everything so bernie's meeting this uh black guy in this car he has big sideburns he has like kind of loud clothes he uses kind of over the top jivey language mm-hmm. as the scene unfolds i was like okay this is interesting considering the director um, yeah as it seems like the kind of thing that is I mean, you know, whatever. I'm sure he's working with whatever he has to work with as a functional matter. But I was like, oh, this seems like an odd fit. But it turns out that this is there is a uh, there is a, a, a turn. You know, there's a reveal about this. Yeah, so. there's a, a deliberateness to what's going on here. So uh, he wants the demonstrators back. Uh, he gave Bernie a, some guns to prove whatever stock he had. Uh, so we're learning that that uh, Petrankus is in fact the gun runner here or in this deal. Uh, so he was supposed to trade those back for the factory merch. Um, unfortunately, he can't because the FBI, you know, popped the car. Um, and he explains here that uh, his ex sometimes goes on a bender, decides that she hates him, and calls him calls in his car as stolen. Yes. So it just happens sometimes, um, which I assume is. What has actually happened? Yeah, th- there's no other explanation for that particular event. So we got to assume. Right. Because the whole, as the plot unfolds, we see that the fact that the FBI found this car with the guns in it is a problem. Like that was not the plan. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But uh, he says that he got out of a, he, he got out of jail on some loophole. Opening the trunk was a legal search and seizure, which I thought was interesting because they specifically said, they specifically set up the police search as saying, oh, we have probable cause. Yeah. yeah. But as we learn again, there's a little behind the scenes here. So maybe that's just what he was told, I think, is what you're supposed to take away from that. Yeah. Somebody's pulling someone's ticket here. Like this is not, um, yeah, it's not straightforward. It, 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 it contradicts what we've witnessed. And it, I think we're supposed to know that it's contradicting that what we witnessed. Yeah, this this episode has lots of things that maybe go like, huh? 
And then after another couple scenes went, oh. Yeah, yeah. I was right to question that. Okay. I was supposed to get hung up on that detail. Yes. (laughs) Well, since the cops are involved, it's going to be more difficult. And uh, our gunrunner guy wants another 10K over the 75,000 they've already agreed on. Um, And they have to do the delivery tonight at midnight. Petrangus does not seem very happy about this, but he says, you know, he'll do what he can. And once he gets out, uh, the convertible pops up with uh, hella rad hydraulics front and back. <laughs> and that uh, slowly moseys off screen. It it takes its time doing that, too. I, I do enjoy that, that they're like, no, we're just going to sit and watch this. We paid to have this car do this. Right. So 2100 hours is nine o'clock, right? Yes. 9 p.m. So 9 p.m. Bernie gets bailed out. This happens in daylight, so I assume this is the next morning, probably. They don't actually yeah. do a ticker over this. And then, 1000 hours, Jim barges into Agent Spelling's office, wanting to know why uh, Petrenka's got sprung. He has a line where he says he spent a lot of time and money making bail this morning, uh, and he wants to know what's going on, because clearly, why would they let him go without letting Jim go at the same time? Mm-hmm. And his lawyer did, you know, was trying to find out when, you know, some some paperwork thing when he was supposed to arrive for a hearing or something. Yeah. And there's no computer record of Petrankis checking in or out of the county jail. Uh, Spelling doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, it seems very genuinely like that doesn't make any sense. There has to be a record, right? Mm-hmm. He says there's a comp- copy of the statement on microfilm. I don't have it on my desk yet. It probably got hung up in the system somewhere. <laughs> but if Jim is concerned about the paperwork, go talk to the steno pool. And so Spelling tells Jim how the ATF agent grabbed one of the secretaries. Like, I know yes. there's a record because I know that the ATF guy took a secretary to take his dictation because I got yelled at about it, right? You were here. Yeah. Jim leaves with a wonderful line of... Uh, because they're going back and forth about, like, getting paperwork, right? This is the federal government, huh? Now I know why my old man got uh, 111 Medicare cards sent to him. Not one of them had his name on it. So good. Uh, but after Jim leaves, Spelling does pick up the phone and calls over to the jail to find out what happened. So Jim has now planted this seed with Spelling of, like, oh, something weird is going on, right? Mm-hmm. Quick aside, a number of years ago... The Chicago transit system turned over to a new, like, fare card vendor and a new system for putting money on a card and whatnot. They had all kinds of problems with it, including people would get multiple cards in their own name, or they would get a bunch of strangers' cards that had all been sent to their address. Wow. And there was a story. So there are stories in the paper about, like, oh, all the stupid stuff that Venture's doing. And I think one of the stories was something like, Someone who had a P.O. box went and opened it and it had a hundred venture cards in it that were all like to the same name or something like that. Like their system just duplicated his request a hundred times or something. I understand how that kind of thing can happen is what I'm saying. All right. So that was 10 hundred hours, 10, 15 hours, officer of the (laughs) steno chief. So we start with this great establishing dictation from Mrs. Bateman. It is not the act of pilfering that concerns us. It is the attitude that condones it. That presumes it's all right because no individual is deprived of anything. 
but it's the individual that comprises the system. And we are each, to some degree, diminished by the crime against the whole. So it is imperative that we stop this filching of supplies. We are policing the members of the staff for their own good and for the good of the department. And we must encourage them to police each other. It's like, this lady is a cop. <laughs> I, uh, I like my notes. I say, like, I love characters like this. Those who have like just a box of power. Like here, here's the mm-hmm. perimeter. This is where all your power is. And they wield that like it was the most important thing in the world. Right. She is surrounded with actual cops, <laughs> but she, she's the one who, who is so by the book and so strict, you know, when you, especially like compared to, uh, Spelling, right? Mm-hmm. Who's the ATF guy walks in and is like, I want a piece of this case. He's like, all right, you've got a piece. You know what I mean? Like, it's very. Well, as we heard, he had like 362 other cases or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. And she's got like this very petty domain, but God damn it, she's going to she's going to run it as the tightest ship possible. Yeah, that's so good. So she sees Jim walking around and taking notes in a notebook. So she goes out to confront him. <laughs> He's standing at the desk that Stacy, the uh, hijacked secretary, usually sits at, has her name placed. He says that he's from personnel and he's conducting a spot check on absenteeism. And I think he makes the correct read on her, right? And says that I I refer to in my notes as uh, he has technobabble about statistical analysis, right? Like, this isn't formal. This is just so that we can establish a baseline against which to compare deviation of absentee, you know, like blah, 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 blah. Uh, Mrs. Bateman says that, well, she's on sick leave. Um, that's why she's not in. Uh, and in fact, her father called in to say, you know, that she wouldn't be coming in. Jim thanks her, says that, uh, you run a tight ship. And then I think gets out of there before he can be (laughs) interrogated anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Throws out a compliment and then runs. Uh, the dark haired woman from before, who I think was taking the dictation at the beginning of the scene, uh, had overheard this. And tells Mrs. Bateman that, I, you know I don't like to gossip, but she happens to know that <laughs> yes. Stacy doesn't have any relatives in California. So how could her father have called her in sick? Interesting. And then the end of the scene is we see Jim go over to the punch card thing. If anyone remembers punch cards. Yes. <laughs> there's a rack of, your, of, of paper cards next to the door. And when you come into work, you take it out and you put it in the punch machine. And the machine records that you came in, and then you punch out again at the end of the day. Uh, I had w- exactly one job that had a mechanical punch machine when I was uh, uh, a teenager. Since then, it's been... Uh, I've had jobs where you, like, tap a card, right? Yeah, yeah. I can physically feel the... I can't remember what kind of pump uh, punch machine I saw in this episode, but the ones that I used, like, detect it when the card was in, and they punched it, but when they did, it was like, cha-chunk. Yeah. There's no mistaking it happened. It was You could feel this, like, vibration. It felt very final at the end of the day, and, and really oppressive in the morning of the day. <laughs> yeah. Jim takes out her punch card to look at it, and then puts it back, and then gets out of there. And the end of the scene is uh, Mrs. Bateman goes over and lifts out the punch card, and looks confused. I think, like, why did he want to see this, right? Yes. Well, what's his interest in this one woman who's not come into work? Right. Something's afoot. Something is afoot. All right. 1,100 hours. 
National Intelligence Agency, Office of Agent Donegan. So earlier, uh, Agent Donegan, the guy with the face, um, <laughs> turns out he is a National Intelligence Agency uh, officer or agent. So I assume that the, NA, the NIA is supposed to be like an NSA analog because that's not a real it's it's not a real agency there's a director of national intelligence yeah they just just left right but that's not it yeah but they're part that's part of i think homeland security yeah or they're part of whatever unit like is supposed to coordinate all the intelligence all the federal intelligence or something yeah it's a cabinet level position so it's not like in a department so I was just looking to see, like, did the did there used to be NIA, and it got yeah. As far as I can tell, this is just straight up a for whatever reason we aren't going to use the NSA, yeah, <laughs> or the CIA, which they've done in other episodes. Maybe I'm missing something about this, and someone who was more politically aware in the '70s would have some some insight into uh, this choice. But considering how they have no problem using FBI, CIA. Uh, ATF, like all the other agencies, why like this one, they made up a fake, a fake agency. Yeah. I'm looking through the inner here, uh, through the internet and not finding anything. Like everything has intelligence in the name, but none of them are. Mm -hmm. There's a national geospatial intelligence agency. (laughs) There are a lot of intelligence agencies, but the NIA is not one of them. That we can tell. That we can tell. That's what they want us to think. So that said, so this is a, yeah, a, a national intelligence guy and so he is reviewing uh pictures and an audio recording of petrenkus talking to who it turns out was an undercover agent uh the guy who was in the car agent yes. watkins donegan is not a fan of how much pressure watkins is putting petrenkus on and he says something like i had to take his mind off of why he got out of jail so easily i that he had to pull his mind off the vaudeville routine at the jail Yes. So it it definitely feels like Watkins is a little hung out to dry, right? Like he's right. uh he's doing his job. What's going on behind the scenes over here? What Donegan's up to is making his job tougher. Donegan tells him that he shouldn't have done what he did, but I think Watkins even says it's a by the book strategy. Something like, like it's, that. Yeah. He says something about how, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces there's a lot of stuff going on that isn't great that is going to make this more difficult but you know actually considering what we fell into the company's going to come out of this smelling like a rose i mean we've even got a sponsor on the cadillac what's that guy's name rockford yeah rockford you know with any luck that guy's going to eat it for all of us which is a great line rockford's going to eat it for all of us so watkins wants to know about his partner for tonight um and he's not going to get a partner. Donegan says that, to be totally honest, we're running out of black guys we can trust. Yes. Then we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Now we understand precisely what this episode is saying about racism. <laughs> well, and Watkins says, well, I think that that's vice versa. <laughs> yes. Storms out. <laughs> Chef kiss as a response. But yeah, so we are, this is the fault line that kind of will lead to the inevitable fall of this plan right they're yeah. putting all this pressure on watkins they're using his identity as a black man to make him more legit to this guy who's trying to buy illegal guns very specifically 
somebody who reads as a rich white dude. Right. Who's trying to commit the actual crime. And then they're not giving him any support for this very dangerous thing they've asked him to do. Mm-hmm. And he just has to suck it up. And he is not happy about it. Oh, uh, good times. It's not that it's particularly subtle, but it is kind of nicely nuanced, I think. Yeah. It's a knot, right? Like, it's it's a tangled knot, but it's one that it's not easy for us. Or, sorry. It's a tangled knot, but it's one that is easy for us to undo, to, to see with it. Like, yeah. I just, at this moment, I wrote down, well, sorry, not this moment. The very next moment, I wrote down all the players in play. Because I was like, okay, there's Petrankis, the FBI, the National Intelligence Agency, the ATF, Rockford, (laughs) this guy, uh, Watkins, and then, as we'll find out, Mrs. Bateman. Right. As long as I know all the players, (laughs) they all have different different uh concerns which is great too they're all pointed in different directions right some of which align and some don't and they all have different levels of knowledge about what's going on yeah yeah uh there's a quick scene where we're back in spelling's office i think he's he's talking to uh agent tony uh there's no paper on petrankis you can't find it there's Mm -hmm. nothing on record and uh atf says that well you know i gave it to steno like I physically saw her take it and go in there, yes. right? Like, I know that it existed, but now there's no record in the computer. There's no record of the jail. And Agent Tony says, well, sounds like the fix is in, top to bottom. So now they both know that there's something not right going on. Mm-hmm. Epi, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the Worldwide Wrestling, Pro Wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. Uh, we're just about to get to the meat of the episode and my theory of the episode. All right. In my notes, I have written, Mrs. Bateman is on the case. Mm, mm-hmm. So Mrs. Bateman goes in to talk to Mr. Donegan. Yes. And he is much more like, I mean, he is uh, polite, but he's much less like, oh, Mrs. Bateman, like, let me not get in trouble with you than Agent Spelling. He certainly believes he's in charge. She tells him that uh, she she had her employee, Stacy, who might take a day off, but her father called in and she doesn't have family in California. And she's not the kind of person to lie like that. 
Yeah. So she wants to know if he knows anything about it because he may have been the last person to see her before she left yesterday because Mrs. Bateman saw Donegan get into the elevator with Stacy. Yeah. Donegan assures her that he has no interest in her employees and that he has a important lunch call and he can't help her. Yeah. So she leaves his office. He has a secretary outside named Jill. Mm -hmm. So she goes out, looks at Jill, tells her to go to lunch on time, because if you go to lunch on time, you'll come back on time. Yes. Uses her power a little bit there um, to send her away from the desk. And then she picks up the secretary's phone to listen in on Donegan's call, uh, which is ominous uh, and... He says that uh, we have another problem on the cigar shipment, and that old battle axe from Steno may need to go on a vacation, too. All right, so there's a lot to love about this moment here. Um, Mrs. Bateman could, up to this point, have been just a regular secondary character, somebody uh, that is on the receiving end of a Rockford con. And in fact, she was in the earlier scene when mm-hmm. Jim was pretending to be doing his statistical research. Just the lightest touch of a con. Yeah. A sous-song of con. Yes. But now this thing where she does, where she goes right to the man she thinks is responsible or somehow knows what's up and just lays the cards out on the table and then walks out, dismisses his secretary and picks up her phone to listen in. This puts her on par with Jim. (laughs) Yep. This is gym tactics that she's employing from a completely different angle. But, like, she, it, she's a different side of Jim's coin here. And uh, I am, as the kids say, here for it. <laughs> so she has the skills, or at least the inclination. Yes. I feel like this whole episode has a really good economy of scenes. Yeah. Everything is, like, super to the point, gets you where you need to be. We cut back and forth between all the different, I was going to say the, all the different actors, but in the sense of all the different um, uh, uh, interests in yeah. what's going on, right? Anyway, so our next one is a quick one back in Spelling's office. So there, are, it seems like Rockford might be getting set up, but they don't really know. Maybe he's the actual, maybe he's involved in getting set up or maybe he's not. Yeah. Uh, so Agent Tony wants to sit on him to see who shows up. And asks if uh, you got any friendlies in the area. And Spelling turns around and gets this enormous Rolodex <laughs> and puts it down on the desk in front of him. The thing is the size of, like, a basketball. Yes, it is, it is gargantuan. Just this morning, I was in an office supply store and saw that they still had Rolodex uh, cards, I guess. And I was like, well, that's that's impressive. Like, that, that this is a technology that is still somewhere in use but i should point out that this office supply store also had uh i think like labels for three and a half inch diskettes Mm -hmm. (laughs) so maybe they just don't churn out their their supply that often right a rolodex if you don't know (laughs) (laughs) google it so mrs bateman goes to her reserved parking spot in the parking garage but then she sees two agents looking around at the cars so good that she's got a reserve spot like with her name right there on the and it's like right next to the door it's pretty much as close as you can be to the door yeah so she doesn't like the looks of this and so she ducks down and awkwardly runs behind the line of cars 
out to the side door so that they don't see her and uh, uh, manages to make her escape before these uh, agents find her. I am telling you, she missed her calling. <laughs> so, uh, and then there's a cut there that I assume was too commercial. Mm-hmm. We come back and we see Rocky's truck in front of a house, or as we know from uh, Gigi Garner, uh, Jim Garner's truck. Yes. Being driven by Jim Rockford. Uh, and Jim is, we, we heard her last name earlier, so there's a little establishing shot of the nameplate next to the door. But this is Stacy's apartment. Jim is picking the lock and, and goes in, snoops around, hears a noise, runs up the stairs to the second floor, and then we see Mrs. Bateman come in, presumably having picked the lock also, unless Jim left it open. He might have. Like, I mean, maybe we can just assume that he left it open. I was expecting a, a bit where she, of course she has a key to her secretary's right. like apartment. Some kind of very bureaucratic yeah. overreach kind of thing. But no, this is not, this is not an important moment. That's just something I thought might happen. I mean, cause we do discover a little down the line that there is like, she knows where her employees live. Well, I mean, or at least she has the capacity to look it up, right? Like, yeah. she has their time cards, which I assume is why Rockford is looking at the time card to get her address. Yeah. Um. So Mrs. Bateman snoops around, and there's this great shot that's kind of low angle. So we see her in the yeah. foreground looking through a drawer, and then the stairway going up is kind of open. So we can see Jim leaning over the rail to watch her. He's in the background, but he's above her. So they're almost in the same plane. Like yeah. It's a really, it's a cool shot. And it like puts them both in this really active kind of position. And then Jim makes a noise to surprise her as he comes down the stairs. And uh, she's, she's startled. <laughs> and I think this <laughs> is the difference here, right? Like, yeah, she's legitimately like a little out of her element. Yeah. Surprised. Yeah. Well, Jim, usually, even when he's surprised, he's always kind of expecting it, I think. Mm-hmm. We established that uh, that they've been, she was snooping around, not stealing. Yeah, she just comes out and says it. I'm snooping. And then we start cutting back and forth with what's happening outside, which is that a van pulls up and uh, Echo 2 is in position. <laughs> Jim says it looks like Stacy hasn't been home for a few days. There's a, a pound of hamburger that's been defrosting and it's not smelling too good but that's not evidence of foul play obviously jim's into hamburger forensics oh he knows (laughs) yeah but there's not much else to see uh jim offers her a ride home uh she says that she'll take the bus uh but then she ends up getting into the car so i guess he talked her into it so the truck leaves the van calls it in and we learn that echo 2 was there to stake out Mrs. Bateman, not Jim. Like, because it says, like, an unknown male, whatever. You know, so now we were like, oh, because we just had the scene, let's sit on Jim. But now this surveillance is on her. So we're having even more of these overlapping spy-y kind of things. Yeah, it's a different, it's not the same people that that are looking at Jim. Who's doing what for who and why. Um, Driving in the truck, uh, Jim comes clean, says he's not whatever alias from personnel. His name's Jim (laughs) Rockford. And that he's snooping around because uh, because Stacy has the key to keeping him out of jail. There's something going on. She's involved. It's mysterious that she's disappeared. And Jim has the feeling that now the three of them are hard luck pawns who stumbled into the wrong game. Yes. The other delightful thing about this line is that 
I think this is the moment when ba- Mrs. Bateman figures out that he's a PI, right? Like she asks him, "So what? Like, what do you do, or what line of work are you in?" And he says that he's a PI. I feel like there's something about her reaction to this line that was like the line just tips her off. I feel like it's just the very PI line. And then uh, she ends the scene by saying that, "Well, then he must. Then he's free to indulge in fanciful speculations." Oh, that's what it. Yes, yeah. Because clearly she's too logical and rational to believe this conspiracy theory. Uh, 1,400 hours, we see uh, uh, Spelling and another guy with a telescope on top of a building near Paradise Cove. And they're staking out Jim's trailer. So many attractive nuisances (laughs) in Paradise Cove. There's been a couple before this, but this is where I started noticing the, like, looking at things through telescopes and binoculars, like that effect. A very spy movie kind of thing, yeah. I think that's a motif that we see more and more of as we see all of these different spying kind of things going on. Yeah. Uh, There's a great detail here where it's a a retired colonel of some kind is helping them out, giving them permission to be on his balcony or whatever. And he's glad that someone is finally doing something about that Rockford. (laughs) It seems very natural to him that there would be an intelligence agency spying on him when his problem with Rockford is that he was doing like donuts in the parking yeah. lot or something <laughs> like that. Uh, they see Rocky show up in a different truck. So Jim's yeah. driving Rocky's truck. Rocky's driving some other pickup. Yes. Um, he goes to the trailer. He comes out of the trailer. The uh, colonel says, oh, I think that's his dad. And Spelling sends someone to follow him. And then if he goes home to tap his phone. Really good use of department resources. I feel like it's been a while since we've had this kind of episode where there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving pieces, but everything that happens, the logic for it has been established previously. They let you know. Even in cases where it doesn't necessarily have to. Yeah. There is going to be, there is a payoff for let's put a bug on his phone because later there's a phone call from Rocky's house that gets overheard. Right. And yeah. We didn't need a scene where he said, oh, let's put a bug on his phone to assume yeah. that that could have happened. But it's nice that it's there because it plants the seed so that when it happens, it's a payoff for that moment. And it doesn't come out of nowhere. And it's just part of the fabric of the story. And I feel like pretty much everything in this episode is like that. Yeah, like I said before, it's like a tangled knot, but it's not something we can't untangle. Mm-hmm. Like we, we're not stuck in a situation where we're like, I don't I really don't know what's going on. It just feels frantic enough that you can kind of understand that none of uh, none of the agencies involved here have the full picture right. of what's going on. Maybe the, the, the FBI guys who want to frame up Rockford right now have the full picture. That's it. Well, that's the, the National Intelligence Agency. I'm sorry. Yes, sorry, not the FBI. I, I apologize to our friends in the FBI. But the NIA doesn't know that the FBI is trying to find out what's going on. So like, even they, even though they know what's happening with Jim and Mrs. Bateman, they don't know that they're also being chased. Yes. And the FBI doesn't know who they're chasing. Yeah. Right. So yeah, no one has the full picture and it's great because pretty much you can see all the decision-making all follows from what each individual knows at the time. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't really feel like there's decision-making that's being made in order to make the plot happen. It kind of feels like the decisions are all being made because they're following the characters as established and what their goals are. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a complex plot, but it's, it is, 
I don't want to go so far as to say character driven. Right. No character makes a decision that you're thinking this is just so the plot can get to where it's going. There's the big coincidence of uh, of Stacy being seen to be pulled into the ATF interrogation. Right. Right. And then there's the coincidence of Mrs. Bateman seeing Donegan. Yeah. But that's like that's just set up to get her in tank. Right. Those are just oh, that's why the story is happening. Yeah, exactly. No, it's good stuff. Um, good, good stuff. So Jim pulls up before they get to Mrs. Bateman's house because, as he points out, there's someone in a blue car across the street watching her front door. <laughs> he asks if there's anyone else home. Is there any Mr. Bateman? And she says, uh, no, I lost him in the war. And, yeah. you know, Jim says, oh, I'm sorry. And she's like, oh, it happened a long time ago. Again, little things that pay off. In the moment, I was like, oh, this is a nice little detail about this character. Right. Yes. Like that's all. But I was like, and that's all it is. And I noticed it. Turns out this has a payoff. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, it's good stuff. Uh, so she tells Jim about the whole thing with Donegan seeing Stacy and how he overheard his phone call. Uh, explains to Jim that he is with the National Intelligence Agency. So mm-hmm. now Jim says that. So now things are starting to make a little more sense with all this framing up. Right. Like, well, they're involved. Yes. <laughs> It's a little funny because uh, they both clearly have different experiences with the National Intelligence Agency. <laughs> and Jim's is very much like, oh, okay, these Yeah. <laughs> but she deals with them, like, on a daily basis. That's a, that's her job. I think I think maybe she says we should call the police. And, yes. And uh, Jim says, what, are we going to walk into the police station and say the National Intelligence Agency is following us? <laughs> can't really do that unless they have something harder to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a little gag where he has Mrs. Bateman take a memo. Yes. And it is just writing down the license plate number on the car. Uh, you could tell that Jim would enjoy having a secretary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a establishing shot of Jim leaving the motor vehicle's annex. Mm-hmm. He uh, needs a dime for the payphone. Uh, of course, I guess he's calling whatever the contact number is. Uh, talks to the operator or whatever, and he's trying to find the uh, Golden West Tobacco Company. But there's no listing, and the address is a P.O. box, and so this seems like perhaps this is all a front organization set up by the NIA. Mrs. Bateman says that, well, uh, Stacy works for her. I don't know if I maybe noted this wrong or if they talk about Stacy, but then they go talk to Jill in order to yeah. find her. Essentially... Ms. Bateman is like, okay, the next the next thing we can do is track down the people who work for me who mo- might know something. And so they go to uh, Jill's apartment. Um, they're not so nicely welcomed in by uh, Susan, who is oh, also yes. a secretary in the steno pool, who uh, has a drink. She's celebrating and gloating about how Jill doesn't have to say anything. They don't have to listen to Mrs. Bateman anymore. She's going down the tubes. Yeah. They found missing secret naval intelligence files in her desk. And so she's been suspended until the agency completes an investigation. There's so many agencies in this one building. (laughs) It is the federal building. That's true. So we have Jill, who is Donegan's secretary and is seems not unhappy, but is not celebrating. And then we right, have Susan, yeah. who is there just to show us how the 
Stenopool feels about Mrs. Bateman, <laughs> right? I love the the dynamics at work in this scene because we have four characters with different relationships to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deliver the information we need to see, but they also show uh, that the Stenopool might not miss Mrs. Bateman, right. <laughs> you know. But but they also through through um, Jill, there's there's a moment of like. Or there's a humanity to it, right? Mm-hmm. And and also the fact that Jim steps in and uh, defends her. Or maybe not defends her, but shuts Susan down. And Susan's drunk. Right. Like, that's another, like, important aspect of this. But, I, like, I, I really like the dynamics going in the scene. It's another, like, complex but straightforward moment in this uh, in this show. Yeah, and Jim ends, ends up by saying... They just want to ask some questions. The answers to the questions might be critical to saving Stacy's life. Yes. So if Jill has anything she wants to say, maybe after Susan is, you know, finishes <laughs> her drinks, um, Jim gives Jill the number to call to talk to him, which, you know, as we will learn, is Rocky's number. Yeah. But they leave with that. He leaves on that line of like, you know, this might save Stacy's life. There's a lot at stake here. Um, so we have a bit of an emotional beat on the back end of this as they're, uh, Jim and Mrs. Bateman are back in the car. Uh, she says that she'll be okay. The thing that bothers me is how anyone could give credence to such a story in the first place. Oh, well, people are always willing to believe the worst about somebody they, well, that they... They hate... Is that it? She says that all she asks is an honest day's effort in exchange for their salary. That's all she asks. <laughs> yeah. And she prides herself in an efficient and functional department. What's so bad about that? I gotta say, the Rockford Files have done a great job with this episode because I... Because you don't hate her? I don't hate her. I, <laughs> the nature of my being is that I would hate this character. Yeah. Especially for a phrase like that. Like, you don't understand what you're asking with your, your wages there. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're demanding more than what you're letting on. And instead, I'm like, yeah, I like this character. <laughs> this leads to my total nonsense theory about this episode, which is that this is a backdoor pilot. <laughs> you think they're all backdoor pilots? I do, I do. But, like, Eleanor Bateman steno chief mm-hmm. right like every episode something comes into that federal building it could be <laughs> with the fbi it could be with the atf it could be with the national intelligence agency it can be with naval intelligence <laughs> something gets messed up in the paperwork and she's on the job uh and then occasionally she calls in rockford to help mm-hmm. they could have done this they could have the rockford files could have owned the 80s is what i'm saying <laughs> well we get to see jim's uh philosophy expressed in his response here which is well no there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not the only reason for living yes <laughs> so they go over to rocky's rocky is excited to welcome a guest yes <laughs> uh she gets introduced as eleanor here to rocky so mm-hmm. a little more informal uh, rocky offers to serve wine and then there's some kind of joke about the kind of wine that i yeah. did not understand <laughs> Over my head, I'm I'm with Rocky on this. Mm. Whatever wine he was serving must have been fancy. He does mention that that he was waiting. There's a TV special that he's been waiting all month to watch, and I love that. And and she was she's down for it. Like there's something incredibly charming about what's going on here. You know, is it 
Is it Jim setting Rocky up with the? Uh, I Mr. feel Bateman? like a little bit. I feel like he's he's kind of like yeah. Let's let's see what happens. So he does. The, so he serves this wine. There's some joke about it. Jim and Mrs. Bateman like kind of like share a glance of amusement over yeah what this wine is. He's been waiting to to watch this special program about the Portuguese fishermen. Yes. <laughs> and uh, as they settle in, I think he just asks, like, so is there a, is there a Mr. Bateman? That is, I'm like, whoa, Rocky, <laughs> get right into it, aren't you? And Jim is reading a newspaper and he has reading glasses on. <laughs> yes. Mrs. Bateman starts to say, well, uh, no, I lost him, uh, repeating the loss in the war line. Mm-hmm. But then Jim, like, tucks down his glasses and looks at her over the top of his <laughs> glasses over the newspaper. She looks, sees him do that, and then goes, he left me when I was 22 and never came back. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. Yeah. Was Jimbo on that? Apparently. He gives her this glance like, you're gonna tell my dad that? It's a really intriguing scene to me. Yeah. Um, it adds a lot of humanity to her. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of him, you know, having insight into human nature and being like, yeah, I can tell that there's something else going on that explains why you need to have so much control over this domain. Right. Like that kind of like pop psychology kind of interpretation. It's not important. It doesn't go anywhere, but it is. Yeah. It is a fun scene that just kind of punches up this whole, the, the, the whole second half of the episode. One other thing it does is that it, it solidifies the Rockford Bateman alliance yes that they're on the same team because there's there's this moment that's going to come up and like i think just the next scene where she's like i'm going with you and there's no argument Mm -hmm. we're working together on this and so many people jim would have tried to talk out of going with him but this feels like no we're 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 a team here it's you and i against the world Yes, we go to Rocky's uh, asleep on the couch. We have this nice little mirroring where... So Rocky's passed out on the couch watching the TV. The phone rings. It's Jill finally calling. Yeah. When we see her in the background, Susan is passed out on their couch. Yes. <laughs> Jim answers the phone and he wants to know what she can tell him about Petrankus. We then have a quick shot to show the, the tape reels going to remind us, yes, this is being recorded. Remember how we planted a bug here? Yeah. And if we, if we think really hard, we can remember which agencies <laughs> did this, which is the FBI and the ATF, who were in the dark about what the uh, National Intelligence Agency was doing. You know, his his job is that he's a cigar distributor, yeah. um, but she thinks that Golden West Tobacco is some kind of front. She doesn't know more than that, but she does know the address. So she gives them the address for the warehouse off the top of her head. So the person actually listening to the recording is Agent Tony. So he calls Spelling and says that mm-hmm. he's getting a, getting the whiff of, quote, our agency friends. <laughs> so uh, they think they should check out the tobacco place. They have to be careful about how they're doing it because if the intelligence agency guys see that they're getting involved, they'll get iced out of whatever this operation is. Yeah. Because all they care about is looking good on the year-end stats. <laughs> Which is exactly what he accused the FBI of. Right. So now it's the FBI accusing the NIA. Yeah. Echoing that from their earlier dispute. Again, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Jim bets that cigars is a euphemism for guns. So it's time to go check out Golden West Tobacco and see if they have any U.S. Army cigars. 
U.S. Army <laughs> brand cigars. 2230 Hours, Golden West Tobacco Company. It has a wonderful little graphic design is my passion uh, uh, <laughs> sign. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And so that's when Jim's like, let's go. And she says, I'm coming with you. And there's no argument. So in my notes here, I start talking uh, about uh, I start talking about how this lines up with sword and sorcery tales. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is a little bit more complex than usually a sword and sorcery tale would be. But you, you have somebody who has uh, a plot. Uh, you have this this National Intelligence Agency of, man, I forget the name of, um, Donegan. Agent Donegan mm-hmm. has got this plot that he's hatched. At this point, and I think we'll find out, like, this is his idea. This isn't, um, this isn't, like, from higher up. Right. His fat is in the fryer at this point. And it's all going smoothly, but for some reason... It rolls up a rogue into it, right? <laughs> this could have been Jim Rockford. It could have been Conan. It could have been, <laughs> you know, like whatever. But what I love about this is that it's not just Jim Rockford that got rolled up in this. It's Eleanor Bateman that got rolled up in this as well. <laughs> She's the true rogue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this I love the structure of this this kind of story. Um, so, yes, it is 2230 two hours. Uh, Jim and Mrs. Bateman are watching from afar as uh, Petrankus rolls up in a Jeep uh, <laughs> as a big uh, unmarked box truck pulls out of the warehouse, uh, being driven by Watkins. So this is clearly not the plan. The Jeep cuts in front of the truck and cuts it off. Yeah. Petrankus gets out with a gun, gets into the cab, tells Watkins to just follow the Jeep. He feels like he's getting jerked around. This deal is going to go down the way he wants it to now. And he has a line where he says, uh, I don't like dealing with your kind of people, which yes. I assume is racist. Yeah, it just I think it has to be. That's definitely like an underlying thing going on throughout this episode is the 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 pressure being put on. Yeah, this lone black double agent. Yeah. <laughs> or undercover <laughs> agent, I should say. Yeah. So the Jeep pulls out the big white box truck follows the Jeep. Then Jim. And Mrs. Bateman follow the truck in Rocky's truck. And then Spelling and Agent Tony are also watching from a different location. <laughs> they see this all happening. Uh, and Spelling says to fall in behind, but don't get too close. We don't have a parade permit. It's another great line. So now 23.30 hours. The Jeep leads the truck out onto a pier and there's a waiting boat tied up there. And now we see that Donegan and his goon are watching this whole thing happening from a rooftop, it seems. They see Watkins getting hustled onto the boat as, you know, goons and masks start hauling boxes out of the back of the truck. Uh, nothing they can do. Oh, God. That boat's got a sail, and we don't know that they're going to kill Watkins. <laughs> it's like, oh. so callous. Their plan, for whatever this plan is has been to get these guns to Petrankus. Yeah. And they're willing to sacrifice Watkins, if that's what it takes. Uh, We then go to Jim and Eleanor, who are watching this from a different shadowed corner, and we get the bit from the preview montage where Jim sees his case going out to sea. Um, (laughs) He'll sink that boat if he has to. But as they're talking, I guess it gets the attention of Donegan. He sees Jim. This is where Donegan is extraordinarily brave. So Jim tells Eleanor to go get in the pickup and call the police. But then Donegan and his goon don't want them to interfere. 
So the goon goes to get Mrs. Bateman. Donegan goes to get Jim. Is it, um, it's the other way around. Oh, you're it? right. It's the other way around. Yeah. Cause Donegan gives the command, head him off. I'll take the old broad. Oh, Donegan. <laughs> Bravest man in the force. Uh, right. So then we go to spelling and agent Tony spelling says to, you know, get to a phone, call in the police, the coast guard to seal off the area and get a couple of our people down here. Yeah. So now we go through this whole, uh, the big action scene. Donegan grabs Mrs. Bateman, tries to pull her out of the truck. She starts yelling. Jim goes back to help her. Another guy pops up with a gun. And Jim just goes, hi. And that apparently throws him off long enough for Jim to get him one good punch across the jaw and then take his gun. So good. It is extremely good. So then he gets the drop on Donegan uh, while Mrs. Bateman is struggling with him. He then now Jim has the gun, so he hustles the NIA guys towards the boat. Spelling can't see who's who, so he needs to get closer. As they get out onto the pier, Donegan starts yelling, Shove off! Get those guns out of here! And then he just, because why not, Yeah, tells, uh, tells Jim that uh, Petrinkus sells guns to revolutionaries in the third world. <laughs> and that's where these guns are going. And now Jim is interfering with classified government business or a classified government operation. And Jim's like, so the agency's furnishing arms to communist revolutionaries. Yes. So as we know, Jim in his own way, a patriot. Yes. Uh, then uh, the FBI shows up, you know, sirens are going coast guard boat is, is approaching. There's, there's a, a line in there where they're like, what's going on down there? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> just chaos. Watkins takes the distraction to shove Petrankus away from him and jump overboard. So that's who yes. we saw. That's who our preview montage uh, was showcasing. And then the guys who are unloading the guns grab them and start shooting at these oncoming cops. But the guns all start misfiring yes. and jamming in their hands. And then Donegan says, Well, we were supplying those guns. They were defective. Loaded cigars. Communists waste their money on these useless materials. Undercuts their own reserve. You guys actually sit around and think these things up? Yep. <laughs> the, 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 the goons are not able to use the defective guns. Uh, the Coast Guard moves in. Everyone is getting arrested. And then we have the face-to-face -face confrontation of Spelling and Donegan. They're each blaming each other for, you know, everything going wrong. And then Watkins comes up, uh, soaking wet from his, you know, trip into the, into the water. Yeah. He, he takes a swing at Donegan, uh, <laughs> takes both, it takes both spelling and Agent Tony to hold him back, saying, you were going to let me go down. He clearly sees how they were willing to let him get thrown off this boat in the middle of nowhere in the service of this dumb plan. The threat that was said to him earlier was, you're going for a ride at least halfway. Right, like, which is a very Rockford Files style threat. But yeah, I, I, I would not care for my boss if I were him too. You know, they're holding him back, and they're like, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't going to solve anything. Calm down, calm down. And he's like, I want a tape recorder. <laughs> yes. So I feel like clearly this means that he's going to he's going to make some kind of statement. He's going to testify to ensure that justice is served. Mm -hmm. They ask uh, uh, Donegan, "Where's Stacy?" And he says, "Well." She should be home in bed by now. Termination of the plan was at midnight. Yes. 
I hadn't noted it, but I think in the thing that she overheard, Mrs. Bateman heard the word termination, maybe. I was trying to figure that out, too, because this this is a weird... There's two hits on this on this word. Yeah. And I feel like it hadn't come up before, but maybe I just missed it. I No, I didn't hear it before either. And, you know, hear it here, and I'm like, termination at midnight sounds very final. Sounds like, like we're supposed to take it as very final. Right. But everyone in that scene including Mrs. Bateman and Rockford, are like, oh. Well, because he says she should be home in bed by now because termination is at midnight, implying that termination of whatever was keeping her out of the picture is supposed to end. And so their reaction is like relief. And I'm like, no. And Mrs. Bateman says, well, guess everything's back to normal. Yes. So that was 23, 30 hours, right? Yeah. Then 2405, Cypress Motel. <laughs> There's Stacy with a smile on her face, fiddling with her little blouse thing. Um, and there's a man there who's putting a bottle of champagne back in a bucket. <laughs> She's just had the most wonderful last two days with this guy, Dick. Uh, it's just been so, so wonderful and romantic. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's been great. They like embrace. He says, why don't you go down and return the hotel key? And then once she leaves the room, he picks up the phone and makes a call. The operation <laughs> is completed on schedule and has now been terminated. Yes. So there you go. It was a happy ending for her. She got to go on a two-day vacation. Yes. And our final scene, 0915, federal building. Mrs. Bateman comes in off the elevator. Jim's been waiting. Makes a joke about how, isn't she a little late? Well, she doesn't have to punch a clock, so she can... Sometimes she comes in late and leaves late. So see, she's loosened up a little bit. She can be yeah. fun. Jim says that he's just there to uh, finally meet this Stacy uh, and make sure that she's okay. But Mrs. Bateman knows the real reason, which is to check on her. Yeah. It's very nice. But she says that it's going to be hard going into the office after they threw a party when they thought that she was fired. <laughs> um, Jim has a line about as the as the great philosopher... Petrankis once said, it's the first day of the rest of your life. So calling all the way back to the first scene, she goes into the steno pool. The room falls totally silent. We have a close-up on Stacy, who kind of, like, smiles. Mm -hmm. And then we freeze frame on Mrs. Bateman, who is just looking kind of disturbed. Like, the expression on her face is very strange. Yeah. It, I mean, I think it's meant to be a smile. <laughs> I mean, freeze frames... I used to transcribe television shows, <laughs> which had all sorts of random pause moments. And now I, I really appreciate the art of the freeze frame. <laughs> because when you randomly pause, just try it. Hmm. As you're watching an episode, just re randomly pause at moments. And none of them will look good. The, like somebody will have like one eye half closed or, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I, I read it as everyone's all smiles at the end here. Mm -hmm. But there was no definitive thing. Thing. No. Nobody cheered her. They just went quiet when she mm -hmm. came in. It's kind of like she's back. But I love I love that Jim showed up for her. Right. And Jim is right. smiling. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a question mark. Like, what is she mm -hmm. going to do next? Has she learned anything from this experience? Right. And she the answer could be no. <laughs> yes. But it is overall a happy ending. Uh, no one was killed. Yeah. The weird plot was foiled. <laughs> um <laughs> justice i guess is served question mark the plot that was foiled 
Jim managed to stop the federal government from selling faulty weapons to communist revolutionaries in South America. Right. Because he was picked up for a stolen car that wasn't stolen. And he's being framed for transporting illegal weapons across state lines in order to save Petrankus so that he could continue being the conduit to sell yeah. the weapons. So so Petrankus is a legit uh, criminal yes. who deals in arms or cigars, as the case may be. Yes. So the agency was using him to, they were selling him the faulty guns to sell to the communists, mm-hmm. but he's still profiting off of that. Right. Yes. Yes. One can imagine this all ends up with he actually does go down. Yeah. So the the person that we see at the very beginning of the episode being kind of a jackass. Right. Gets their comeuppance. Yes. Uh, The shady national intelligence agent probably gets his comeuppance, too, Mm because we have that plot in the middle, which is Watkins dealing with his crappy bosses. Right. His crappy racist bosses. Yes. And we can assume that, that that works out for him. I'd like to think that he ends up transitioning into uh, ATF and partners up with the young hotshot yes. Tony, Agent Tony. Oh, so that's your backdoor pilot to all this, right? Musia and Watkins. Musia and Watkins. ATF. I, I really enjoyed this episode. It was, uh, it was a rollick. Mm-hmm. It wags its fingers at the federal government, but it doesn't, it's not like a hard hitting, this is a thing that's happening, right? Like right. It, this reflects some of the bullshit that does actually happen, uh, probably before most of that hits the, the newspapers, mm-hmm. but it's mainly this almost cozy tale. <laughs> it's, it's a really good example of, I think like you were saying with how it's like a sword and sorcery story. Yeah. You have a unstable element, which is the protagonist, enter into a previously stable situation and everything changes. Yes. And it's not even that they're trying to change it. It's that their very presence makes everyone else involved have to make new decisions. Like those are the kinds of setups for uh, role playing games that I like the most. Yes. Um, yes. So it feels very relevant to like that kind of storytelling where it's like, okay, we have these three factions and this is mm-hmm. the plan and here's how they're related. No matter how our, for the sake of argument, our protagonists, uh, uh, Jim Rockford and Mrs. El- Eleanor Bateman, no matter how they enter into the story, they are going to throw off at least one of those factions. Yes. And then the reactions to that change are going to drive the rest of the story. Here, here are the factions. Here are the people. This is what they want. And this is how their day is going wrong. Right. Right. Like this is. <laughs> and, yeah. I, I really liked it. it yeah, it's, me too. It's a, it's a fun adventure, really, yeah. more than anything else. Uh, in small spots, very heartwarming. Uh, I really appreciated how Rockford didn't. He took this, this different tact with Eleanor. Uh, where he didn't um, talk her out of... Right. Like, he, he, he talks her out of some, like, really nonsense stuff. Like, going home when she's obviously under observation from some unknown agents, right? Right. Uh, but mainly, it's them working together. He's not withholding information from her, uh, and she's not withholding information from him. There's, like, a mutual respect thing that's going on there. There's this sort of small quiet romance thing <laughs> with Rocky uh, that 
just flirtation or whatever. Like, I don't even know if it was meant to be that or if Rocky's just uh, that way with everyone Jim brings home. Yeah, I agree. I, I really enjoyed this episode. I think it's uh, it's kind of a sleeper, I think. Yeah. So first of all, I thought this was a different episode when I picked it. So I was like <laughs> pleasantly surprised when I was like, oh, it's this one. Yeah. So I think I enjoyed it for that, just mm-hmm. being along for the ride. And when I say it's kind of a sleeper, I guess I mean... If you're going to list all the things that make the Rockford Files the Rockford Files, this actually doesn't have a lot of them. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I meant at the beginning when I said that this is kind of a story that could have been in a different show. Not in the sense of it was developed for a different show, but in the sense of you could do this story with any PI or detective or cop protagonist and kind of adjust some of the details in order to suit whatever their deal is. Yeah, you could definitely do that. But, like, it doesn't really have most of the supporting cast. It doesn't even have the Firebird. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't really try to talk anyone out of doing stuff. There's a few ways in which it's not, like, an iconic Rockford Files episode, but it does definitely feel, like, a little bit in conversation with them because, mm-hmm. uh, like, I got excited the more Alphabet Soup you got are. involved, yeah. right? Like, there's FBI and then... Yeah. All the bureaucracy. Yeah, like, when when I saw that the steno pool was going to be the center of the controversy i was like yes right and that is very rockford files i guess what i'm trying to say is like it feels like a rockford files episode even though if you're ticking off boxes of rockford attributes it actually has fewer of them than many other episodes yes but they're like but like the spirit is there and i i guess that's what i mean by it being kind of a sleeper it's not the queen of peru but yeah. you'll be pleasantly surprised when this one, you know, comes up if you're just watching a couple in a row. Yeah, uh, it's good. Um, thumbs up. Wait, do we do? We don't do that. I mean, we can say we both liked it and we can recommend it to finish out that thought. If you have not seen it in a while and have the ability to, you should watch it. You may be pleasantly yeah. surprised. Um, the really big question at the end is... How long is it going to take Jim to make that $200 he needs to get his car? Yeah. He already tapped himself out to get bail somehow. He's out bail. Yeah, no, he's he is hurting. It's 200 for the car and like that was the whole thing was set off for him going going to Vegas and losing all his money. Yes, basically. <laughs> uh yeah, it, it's definitely not uh, a breadwinning episode for Jim. But who knows? You know, maybe he can do a little work in the steno pool. <laughs> he knows someone there. Yeah. Well, while we pour one out for Jim and however long it'll take him to get the Firebird back, I feel like we have earned our $200 for this day. What do you think? I, I say yes. And I would gladly lend it to Jim uh, <laughs> if, if you give me the Firebird for collateral. Yeah. <laughs> With that, we will... Uh, move on with with our plans and and weird plots to destabilize the communist regimes across the world <laughs> um as we usually do but mm-hmm. we will be back next time to talk about another episode of the Rockford Files. <laughs>